culture news podcast focused on analyzing whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Kan. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch up and then two main items of news usually picked by myself and Eugene. This is the start of my first podcast where I'm going to enunciate and pronounce my words with greater clarity. Thank you. Eugene. You're welcome, Sharice. That's really good. I'm trying. Can can you do it without sounding angry at the same time? I cannot right now. (laughs) I need to do it at this standard and then I can peel it back. Oh my goodness. Okay. So this is going to be the episode where Eugene pronounces everything very clearly, but sounds angry the whole time. I will not mumble or the goal is to not mumble. The goal is to not mumble. I think people get tired of that shit. Of you mumbling? Yes. Uh, Well, of me speaking with this full on level 100 pronunciation. But people don't like listening to you mumble either. Well, they sure like to listen to the rap that way. <sighs> okay. Lots of shots fired. Uh, what are we talking about today to start things off? We published a story last night with Jenny, whose last name I'm going to pronounce in the most American way possible because I don't know how to do it properly. Jenny Trang La. She's Vietnamese. She does not pronounce her last name that way. It's pretty cool. She's this um, Vietnamese-American film producer, and she moved to Saigon, and she's been making films there for the past 10 years as mm-hmm. a producer, um, assistant writer, director, just sort of all these different kinds of roles. And she talks to Elphick about how the Vietnamese film industry is different from Hollywood, some things that are good about that, some things that are bad about that. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a Vietnamese film, though. We will now, and we'll probably have to put one on after. I think we were supposed to. I think Nate was interested in us all watching one of... Her movies. One of her most famous movies. Nice, nice. Called The Rebel. Yeah. That one took a while, right? To produce. Mm, Well, I think there was like a big delay between when it was recorded and when we published it. But the story itself was not that intensive. Transcription still takes everyone a bit of time. Yeah, for sure. There's just some... Actually, transcription is the thing that I wish AI was better at. Yeah. Like, it cannot get better quickly enough because there are some things that just doesn't do well. Like also, you know what's numbers, in, proper nouns, quotation marks, commas, what all of those also things. doesn't do well is the grammatical structure. Like sometimes they should just recognize the grammatical structure. Actually, like for example, if I see New York, if you pronounce those two words or if you transcribe those two words correctly, then you should capitalize them. Yeah. Because exactly. Under, I would I would be okay if they made that sort of judgment call that New York is not that is a new, I don't even know what a noun for York but actually, is. Actually, um, so we were using Trent. So we've been using Trent as a company. Yeah. And I noticed that they're, they are getting slightly better with proper nouns because without me having to change it, they had already capitalized the film names in the way, because of the way she talked about them. Like I made this film called The Rebel oh, and then it capitalized the and rebel, mm-hmm. but it, it's not consistently good yeah. enough at that. Yeah. It's also just the funny way people speak that I think is challenging for AI. Yeah, everyone speaks in such a different manner, right? Yeah, with different cadences, with different filler words. 
there's a lot of, I'm not trying to be like forgiving towards AI. I, I still think that we should be capable of making it better, but I understand why it's difficult. Guess we're getting there slowly, but surely. And then you've been working on a story. Yeah. I've been working on a story with Ariel of Mr. Green that Alex did the interview and been going through cutting it. And it was honestly one of the more pleasant sort of things to cut through, maybe because it wasn't my own. So I wasn't familiar. Like, obviously, if I'm the one doing the interview, I'm familiar with the story. But when it's someone else, it's nice to be able to like actually listen and interact with the story on your own, like laugh, like make you think about something that was said, etc. Yeah, this is one case where you said you really liked the interview. Yeah. Yeah. And you were trying to explain to me how it wasn't just the content of what Ariel was saying, but the interaction between Alex and Ariel. I mean, the interview was as though it's you and I talking right now, where you laugh, you banter, you crack jokes. Whereas I don't think I'm that type of interviewer. I really don't think so. Yeah, I don't think you are Because I always get super... I'm always a little uncertain because I think that comedy, when you're trying to inject it because you think that's your personal, I don't even know, I don't even know where to go. Like, I don't even know how to tackle this issue because for me, when I look at comedic value and all those things, like it has, it has to happen very naturally. Right. But on that note, it's also like, if you don't know the person that well, then you don't just crack a joke for the sake of cracking a joke. Well, another reason I think, I don't think I am the same style of interviewer as Alex either, but I think one of the reasons is because I want to leave myself room to ask more difficult questions that they might not feel totally comfortable with. And if they know you too well or you personally don't want to have that sort of... Because it's like a shift in the mood. Like oh, if you have yeah, something yeah. that's really chatty, casual, comedic, I would feel as though it's a shift to be like, okay, and now how about like this personal thing, this controversy? Okay, that's fair. I, it's never crossed my mind because I've never been on that other side, that other gear. Of closer to Alex, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And we, I think you and I are more in tune with having to ask that difficult question. Or we're more interested to ask. Yeah. Whereas Alex is. He likes just having a conversation. Yeah. He likes just having a conversation. But I think the two and their chemistry is really good. So if you're unfamiliar, I probably should have prefaced what... Right, who Ariel is. Yeah. Ariel does this really, really cool store called Mr. Green. It's like a lifestyle cannabis weed marijuana shop and the reason why i use all three of those terms is because it's discussed in the story but that will hopefully come out friday i mean by the time this podcast launches you'll probably yeah the story will come out before this podcast does yeah oh you know what we gotta recap our live session oh yeah yeah what do you think sure um it was in the beginning i was really nervous i think that i was reading i knew going into it that I needed to slow down my, my delivery because mm. it's usually really fast. And also when I'm recording it live, like, or sorry, when I'm recording it, <laughs> when I'm recording it, you know, in the studio, I can take my time. And if I screw up, I can just re-record it, which is funny because I'm going to have the other two instances of me messing up cut out. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No retakes, no editing. Yeah. No, it was overall it was good and it was a lot easier than I thought. I was a little bit afraid that there'd be dead space or there'd be times when 
you were trying to figure something out and you needed time to think about it. And, you know, usually we could spend, you know, 30 seconds thinking about something and you might just tell me, Hey, Eugene, I need a second to think about this. And that's cool. But maybe it forces us to actually fully embrace making it up because you have to work through the problem live. Yeah. I had to think quicker, which is not bad on the spot. Mm, Not bad sometimes, but it is good to have room for reflection because I don't think your first take is always going to be the best one. No, but then it also forces this sort of organic, this forced organic, um, I guess almost like this problem solving. Yeah. It's a constraint. Yeah. I liked it. I don't know. I don't know how much I liked. The weirdest part for me was having to do this 45 degree sitting angled like towards the camera and then towards you. Cause usually when we record, we sit directly across from each other, mm-hmm. which makes it much easier to have a regular conversation. But then when we're doing this sort of towards the camera, towards each other thing, you feel like you're performing even though no one is in front of you. Yeah. So I don't it. know how I like the, the green screen. Oh, I thought it was fun. I, I think it's because I didn't know what was behind us. Oh, right. Sorry. Because I was sitting with a view of the, live stream so I could see what the background was. And uh, Gavin Wong of Hong Kong Community Radio, he had all these videos from Hong Kong scenery, like the skyline, being on the tram, being in the MTR. And those were the scenes that were playing behind us. So I think maybe I had a better time like while we were recording because I was like through the side of my eye watching the video at the same time. That was trippy, which is like a different vibe for us, you know, which makes it like a the whole thing kind of more quirky than we usually are. Yeah. I wonder if there is an appetite for live broadcast or I guess just video. I think ultimately the advantage is that it was on Facebook and with a new audience. Yeah. So I think more people found out that we do this podcast than already knew. Yeah. And what was weird though is like, so I don't know about you, but my Facebook, my Facebook feed is private. So when, if you post a video and you tag me in it, it doesn't show up on my timeline until I allow it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why the HKCR one one was shared with my friends. Oh. Hmm. I don't don't know. Unless they were following them already. I don't know. know. It's a weird... Because like my relatives saw it. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Don't worry. I don't think you said anything incriminating. I mean, I don't think I did either, but now it's weird to, I mean, not that I'm trying to hide. Your next next family dinner is going to elicit a few questions. I'm not trying to hide what I do with Macon, but I don't know if you get this in trying to explain to your like aunties and uncles what you do. It gets a little complicated. So it's like just way easier for me to tell them, oh, I'm a designer. So the subject I picked is from Monday's briefing that Alec Rose did an analysis piece on. And it's about Upwork having this time tracking feature that many considered to be over the top and too intrusive. So Upwork is this program, this pretty big network. They say they have millions of jobs. It's this network that's used by freelancers and their clients to match a freelancer to a client who has a job and then also ensure that the freelancer is paid fairly and that clients paid on t- clients pay on time. 
So Upwork is essentially this platform that connects people and then makes sure that payments happen. It's this middleman, which is interesting as well. I kind of picked it because we were talking about this off the mic, the same subject. So I have, I'm actually signed up on Upwork. So this. How often do you get work from Upwork? I have never gotten work from Upwork. So three years ago when I started freelancing, I signed up to all these different platforms such as Upwork, such as Working Not Working, which is another one. And on Upwork, I even went so far as to apply two jobs. But this was three years ago. So it was a different beast. I don't did think I've signed the in the last two years. Um, I did get inquiries. Like I would respond to jobs and then they would respond back. But I felt the interaction was kind of strange. Sterile, cold. Yeah, really cold. I never really fully... Transactional. Probably transactional, I would say. Yeah. And so I just decided, you know, this isn't for me. This kind of work isn't for me. But to get back to the main subject of this article, I wasn't aware, even though I've used Upwork, I wasn't aware that they have this feature called Work Diary, which takes screenshots of your computer and then sends it to your client. So six times every hour, Upwork will take a screenshot of whatever is happening. Every hour is pretty frequent. I know it's super frequent. So uh, roughly every 10 minutes, Upwork takes a picture of your screen, of your screen, whatever is up, which just seems okay. Anyway, Upwork says that it's so that they can guarantee payments are made because if a client doesn't pay, Upwork will still pay you. So Upwork makes this guarantee. Like, let's say Eugene, you're my client. Even if Eugene doesn't pay me, Upwork is going to pay me what Eugene promised. So there's no escrow. There's no middleman that's holding the money. Because no. that's how like freelancer.com works, I think, where you have to put a deposit in. Oh, uh, no, there's no escrow. Um, and also, this is even crazier than the screenshot thing, which already was crazy, is Work Diary tracks keystrokes and mouse movements. So literally the first thing I think of is like, this is a huge privacy issue. That means Upwork sees your passwords because surely within an hour you are logging in and out of stuff. And then cleans out your, your wallets and your exchanges. Sorry. I I just think that that is one huge hazard. And this article, um, I should say the article was produced by Buzzfeed news. Uh, the article says, the interviewed various freelancers and one of them says, oh, I trust Upwork to not do anything sketchy with my info. I was like, how can you even no, but know the, that? The thing is, is it's not about that. It's what if Upwork gets hacked? Yes, that too. You know oh where this goodness. is going, right? You know where this conversation is going, right? I don't know. Where is it going? No, let's continue. I have a question for you. What is more important, getting paid or having your stuff recorded? You know what I mean? So that's this, kind of because I now I understand it because at first I thought if it was an escrow, then it doesn't matter because Upwork is holding the money so that they will always see the delivery, right? Well, Upwork is protecting their interests because if they have to pay the freelancer, they want to have evidence so that they can es- essentially press charges against the client and say like, hey, the freelancer did the work you have to pay. Well, wouldn't just having the work itself... That is one of my huge arguments is that I just don't, as a freelancer, I don't agree with the idea of paying someone based solely on time tracking. And I think this creates this entire, okay, all the privacy and intrusiveness aside, 
The idea of being paid based on time tracking and having that be the key metric creates this idea that time spent equals value rather than the final result being the thing of value. Yeah, exactly. No, I 100% agree. My only thing is that if, if you use Upwork as not because you're trying to facilitate art, you're just using it as a creator's tool, does it have merit? Is it just like an insurance policy? Yeah, so... The article does address this. I think it's people dangerous. Who are on, people who are on Upwork and fielding a lot of work, they're probably people who don't have the resources or the network or the economic flexibility to find work in other places. So they are most interested in getting paid. So I understand that. Yeah. They're maybe not doing jobs. Maybe they want to get to a point where they can do jobs that are really creatively aspiring and for bigger clients. But at this moment, they're really doing jobs because they have the skills and this is a network that gives them yeah. the ability to get paid easily. Yeah. So I guess that is the pro side of this. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what are all the different avenues? Even the system seems a little bit interesting. I mean, everything here is kind of fascinating to me because I was just thinking like, you could just do like a smart contract where when I deliver the work, the, the money gets released. So it's mm. not really escrow. Yeah. Well, I think the, I think the entire prem, <clears throat> like I said, I think the entire premise of having the money linked to time, time and so-called productivity is entirely flawed. It is different too, because if I'm more efficient or better at my job, I'm punished. Exactly. When you shouldn't be, you should be rewarded. So, but Upwork also, no, but to take that back, like Upwork is, and the projects aren't always hourly based. They're more like, Hey, you know what? They're just trying to show that That you were working. That is true. I should say, I should say that Upwork mentioned that time tracking isn't required for 85% of the projects on their website, but this is their own self-reported statistic. I mean, the reality is more... What happens if the key logging gets compromised? Yeah, that's really scary to me. And also the key logging thing just seems even more like screenshots. I can almost accept, especially if you tell me, okay, eventually they're like deleted or like they're erased after a certain time period. Still dangerous, but more acceptable. Oh, also I should mention that the screenshot thing, you have the opportunity to go in and delete yourself as a freelancer within a certain time period. Yeah. Also, but the key presses, yeah. they link key presses to productivity, which also seems crazy to me as a designer. I don't understand how your key presses are related to creating things of value. It's, I think maybe it's just there to show that you're you're present. Uh, so but, hazardous. Uh, to that to that point too, like I'm sure there's if they really want to do it, it it could just track when the requisite programs are open. Yeah. Because for example, I have a uh, program I use to track my time just to see where I spend my time in certain programs or apps. And like it knows when I'm in Photoshop or knows when I'm in, I don't know, friends or Gmail or whatever. Yeah. I actually, I also use time tracking on my own for my own purposes. And is it automatic? No, I have to, well, no, it's not automatic. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. I, I kind of am, this is a tangent. I am kind of interested in those physical time trackers 
where if you can program it, so if you flip it to different sides, then it's automatically tracking different oh, activities. Have you not seen this? I mean, I'm familiar It kind of looks with... like this multifaceted die. Yeah. And you set each face to be a different thing, like, oh, editorial, social, um, email. And then you can just flip it and it knows like what you're yeah. on. I think that's pretty that's cool. That's kind of cool. Um, but I, what, I wanted to take this as well to mention the story I published last week, Cushion, which is a tool for time to, uh, tool for freelancers similar to Upwork. Well, not similar to Upwork, only similar in the sense that it's targeting freelancers. That's the extent of the similarity. And I actually got a lot of, I think more than any other story I've published, I got direct messages about Cushion, especially from, from users or people that were curious. Yes. People that were curious, people who had listened to the story, but still wanted to know more about what exactly I found useful because the story is about, you know, Johnny Hallman as a founder and kind of this bigger Cushion story. And these people it's were messaging me and being life. like, what exact features did you find like the most helpful? You know, what were you doing differently before that you're that you found is done better now with Cushion. You're a Cushion ambassador, Sharice. Congratulations. Yeah. But it was interesting to me because I, I totally believe in digital tools and platforms being able to help freelancers, but it's not so simple. Mm -hmm. Like Upwork can't just step in and prescribe this is the best way. I just, I'm, I'm curious how this has become such a problem in terms of people paying that they needed to create this type of uh, feature. Yeah. Maybe they don't want to publish those statistics. Maybe they don't want to publish those statistics, but they must've made this because there was an issue because there were too many debates over whether someone has done the work or whether the client needs to pay more or less. Mm -hmm. And actually the way Alec, that goes on to the way Alec talked about it in the analysis was he said it erodes trust, like just the entire existence of this tool, of this screenshotting tool means that there's no trust between the client and the freelancer. And I, I do think it's tricky because I don't know how you would establish trust through meeting someone on Upwork. I mean, really the trust is around what the quality of the work the exchange of money. What else? Deadlines. Deadlines yeah. are pretty straightforward. Well, so the free, it's trust both ways. You as a freelancer, you trust the client is going to pay you. Yeah. And that, that I think can be solved. Yeah. In some way. And then the client trusts you as a freelancer to do the work. That is uncertain. And deliver the work on time. Uh, time is, yeah, you, you can, you can definitely put very clear parameters around that. But I think the quality of the work is the big question mark. But everything else I think can be solved. So if it's the quality of the work that needs to be solved, then that is not inherently something that this feature needs to come into the picture for, right? So actually, I wonder, I was just thinking about my own practice and how do I trust my clients that they're going to pay me? Because technically they don't have to. Well, they could not. I mean, they theoretically, they're bound by could not. a contract of some sort. I use a written contract. Yes. So that's what I'm relying on, that they're going to honor that contract. But I guess that doesn't scale well for Upwork. Yeah. So ultimately, if you were to devise a system, what would it look like? 
That's the hardest part. Cause I can, I'm, it's easy for me to be critical of the screenshots and the key press logging. But you're not the person that this but is supposed to be. I don't know if I can think of a better system that's also foolproof. The only bright side to the system is that it, you can opt in. Like they aren't doing it without yeah. letting you know per project. Yeah that they're doing it. I just wonder why Upwork doesn't want to assume the responsibility of holding payments. That's probably another, I'm sure that's a headache, but that would kind of alleviate things. That's true. Because if they're the escrow, they're the middleman. They already are the middleman. I mean, if I were to, I don't know, because I just disagree with the basic assumption. I would just want to move away from time tracking. Yeah. I think it should be based off of deliverables. Like you internally should know. You as a, the freelancer should know roughly how long it takes you to do the project, correct? But yeah. yeah, I agree. But the client shouldn't care. But the client needs to be more specific about their deliverables. Yeah. Like if the issue is you want many versions of a thing and that's why you want someone to spend more time on it, then you should just say how many versions you want instead of saying, I want you to spend 10 hours on this. Mm. The only the only situation where time tracking comes into play, in my mind, is contract work like um, let's say we have an editor at large for Macon and they're, they do 20 different tasks. Then I can see how time tracking would come mm-hmm. into play. But even in that situation, I think it's easier to have solid deliverables. If only you saw how far Sheree snapped her head back. Yeah. I, I mean, I preach this a lot, even to people like younger people who come to me and say, hey, I want to get into freelancing. One of the very first things I tell people is, Charge your projects by items and not by time. So yeah. that's me. I clearly just picked this so I could get on fire about this and tell people. <laughs> and rant? A little bit. A little but it's funny because you didn't push back and I just like the went reason off I didn't push back own. is that I think the solutions are there. That's why I'm kind of like this I could build I'm not saying I could build a system, but I think there's ways of devising a system that is more freelancer friendly. And like I said, the only real challenge here is like, will you as the designer creator produce something that I as a client like, right? That's all it comes down to. Cause you can control the pay. You can control the timelines. Like if you don't pay then, or if you don't deliver on time, then you don't deliver on time. It's black and white. Actually, I, I want to conclude with this quote from the piece that doesn't really fit in with everything we were talking about, but it's still really good. So I want to mention it. Um, this sociologist, Karen Gregory from the University of Edinburgh said, we seem to think that flexibility is the same thing as autonomy and it's not. Autonomy sits at the heart of meaningful work. These surveillance technologies chip away at that autonomy. Mm-hmm. It just rings really true to me. That it's, the Western world does value autonomy. But I, I think the thing that rings true about this is meaningful work coming from autonomy and not just flexibility. Like, I can have flexible hours, but that doesn't mean I will be making meaningful work in my flexible hours mm-hmm. if I don't have the autonomy. The distinction. Yeah. So 
So my subject today is Advisory Board Crystals, a fashion brand, and their collaboration with Wikipedia. Kind of a, a weird one. Were you surprised when I picked this one? No, I love it. Really? You weren't surprised? No, like you might love the topic, but are you surprised by the fact I picked it? Um, a little. It's very streetwear of I'm, you. But I see, I mean, I read your personal thoughts, so I can understand okay, why you picked it. Cool. So if you're unfamiliar with Advisory Board Crystals, it's an LA-based fashion label founded while sharing an Uber pop while sharing an Uber pool ride in Los Angeles by Remington Guest and Heather Haber. This is a quote from the website. Advisory Board Crystals functions as the contemporary iteration of a crystal shop inspired by the needs of the modern human with the desire to utilize the incredible properties of crystals as an integral addition to the art of daily life. We are here to advise you. So the whole release focuses on this shirt with the Wikipedia Foundation that features ABC. I'll I'll reference it as ABC from here on out. Reference which features their sort of art direction. And honestly, the shirt itself is, I'm not, it's it's You don't even describe the shirt. Can you just describe the shirt instead of telling people that it's not you? I forget what it looks like. I looked (laughs) at it like three times. Like that's not. You've looked at it. You've looked at it three times. But you know, that's why I know it's a cool shirt. Like I wasn't like, oh, this is offensive. There's something on the left okay, sleeve. Okay, so on the front, it, Thank you. it's an all-white crew neck sweatshirt. On the front, sweatshirt or long sleeve? Oh, good question. Uh, I don't know. It does look lightweight, but it's a fine. Long sleeve crew neck white shirt. On the front, there's the ABC logo, small, on top of the Wikipedia logo. And then on the right sleeve, there is the Wikimedia logo. And then on the back, have you seen the back? Yeah. The it's back. Like this globe is the Wikipedia globe with the puzzle pieces. And then it says Internet Master. And it's really big. Like the yeah, graphic on the back massive. is quite big. Yeah. So the reason why I was interested is... I can't it's re- not you, but you will wear the Virgil Abloh off-white jersey well, with one sleeve on. Well, that's because it was hot. God, <laughs> way different. <laughs> Anyways, so if you read their caption on Instagram, which if you follow them on Instagram, I intermittently was popping in and out. Nope. I'll have to restart that. Yeah. Somebody's uh, delivery interrupted a thought. (laughs) All right. So I was popping. So when I was reading their description on their Instagram, which is kind of interesting because they they often provide these pretty long captions that really go into detail about the purpose and why they're creating things. And basically, they're talking about how conceptually one element of the shirt's design is represented through appropriation, combined elements of familiar visual language from the internet and ABC, specific information related (laughs) details. I feel like it would be Christy. So when you when you edit it, one thing you just have to keep in mind that like we try to make it sound as perfect as possible. That's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. 
Like if I if I mess up or she messes up or like I say like, we should take it out and make so, you try to make it sound as intelligent. As yeah. Possible. So make it sound like 120% smarter. Yeah. But also you'll notice Eugene and I, if we do a false start, we'll just restart. Instead yeah. of just saying the word again, we'll start again from the beginning of the sentence. So like, so like, yeah, yesterday I went and ate chicken wings. So you see, I said, so like twice, cut the first one out. Thank you. All right. You got to start over from... From where should I start from, yeah. Start from on their Instagram. They write long captions. This is what it said. Okay. As is the norm today, you know, a lot of releases happen on Instagram or you communicate what goes on on Instagram. And one thing on the ABC Instagram is they're often quite comprehensive with their captions. So they really want people to know why they're doing things. And I I appreciate that because I think probably, well, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but in general, most people are are adverse to reading on Instagram or in period, but they still feel it's an important part. So that I have to give them props for. One thing that they really wanted to kind of sell was that to them, Wikipedia is an important part of both the internet and their creative process. As you know, Wikipedia is a free online encyclopedia created and edited by volunteers around the world and hosted by the Wikimedia Foundation. So this to them is like an essential. So this to them is like the essential infrastructure for free knowledge. And they believe knowledge to be something that should be shared and it should be free. And this, this is kind of interesting quote. And this is a powerful quote. Knowledge is power and awareness is survival. In addition to being a large source of inspiration and information for our projects, Wikipedia leads us to a place in which you can imagine a world where every single human being can freely share in the sum of all knowledge. Free information is a privilege. One of the ideals of ABC Studio is that there are many ways to save the world. As a nonprofit, Wikipedia and the Wikimedia Foundation's related free knowledge projects are powered through donation. Sorry, the... This is, they, they should have put a dash here. Sorry, let me reread that. Yeah. That's what happens when you don't uh, Copy adhere, adhere to, to grammar. But um, f- free information is a privilege. One of the ideals of the ABC studio is that there are many ways to save the world. As a nonprofit, Wikipedia and the Wikimedia Foundation... Real- okay, sorry. As a nonprofit, Wikipedia and the Wikimedia Foundation's related free knowledge projects are powered primarily through donations. Help us keep knowledge free. Yeah, so I don't know if you mentioned, but 100% of the proceeds from was, that yeah, shirt I was gonna get into that. go to the Wikimedia Foundation. Oddly enough, I want to double check what exactly that meant when people say all proceeds go. So in general, it means after the costs have been... Someone, someone making noise here? Jesus. Trying to record here. An old Scotty boy. And his earth-killing plastic. Anyways. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So, to that point, I did go and look up what it meant to have 100% of all proceeds go to Wikipedia. So, what it means is that all your costs, sorry, all your profits after your costs have been deducted is the proceeds. 
So for example, if it's a $1 bottle of water and you sell it for $10, those $9 would go towards the cause. Um, you see, sorry, my, my thing's kicking me to the top. I actually am not super aware with, I'm actually not super familiar with ABC. It was kind of towards the tail end of my interest in streetwear. Wait, but you said that you check into their Instagram period. Like once in a while. Like if someone pops something up. But I, w- I would say since the inception, I definitely haven't really been following. But okay. I did follow. Not that it really matters. But I think it's such an interesting sort of intersection here because Wikipedia to me, I believe, at its core is valuable. But as like an actual resource, I don't know how valuable it is. Does that make sense? Like I think the fundamentals of it are... valid and important. Like the free knowledge fundamental. Exactly. But I would say that is the quality of Wikipedia there? It really depends on the subject. it is though because I, okay, it it does depend on the subject, but let's say I'm looking up some historical event. Exactly. I will always just go to Wikipedia. But arguably that is derived from probably existing encyclopedias. Yes. Potentially. That's what I'm saying. Like I think for some things it's good and other things it's like, I don't know. So my, what's interesting is that. But you know, it's had this whole evolution. Like when we were in high school and Wikipedia first came out, you weren't allowed to use it as a source. Yes. But I think that's changed. Yeah. But ultimately, like, that's not even the point. Like I I think whatever. in general. Free knowledge is important. Exactly. Free knowledge is important. I look at Wikipedia as a step in any process, whether it's research, whether it's inspiration, et cetera. Um, but I am really interested on the utilization of streetwear as a vehicle for bringing to light the importance of certain, I guess, social causes. You could say Wikipedia is kind of like a social cause in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it is interesting as well because ABC, I did not know this in advance, but I just looked it up. ABC did used to pull a lot of their graphic inspiration from Wikimedia, mm-hmm. maybe from free resources or from remixing existing resources. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like, paying back yeah, to that source. Yeah. One other part that I really wanted to reference because I found it interesting was just people getting upset about the inability to buy the t-shirt. Oh yeah. Because because it's like limited edition. Yeah. Which makes me also wonder how, how that plays into the grand scheme of things and what is the balance between marketing and actual cause benefit? Because it doesn't seem very useful if you, if the point is to donate to Wikimedia, unless it's not financially sustainable for them, but it's like proceeds. Yeah, it's all yeah, hundred percent of the proceeds. I, I I would um be interested to see what it would look like if you took hundred percent and you dialed it down to like seventy five percent and just printed as many as orders came in. Yeah. So imagine you had hundred thousand orders for T shirts. I don't know if that makes sense or not. That's something I was thinking about because if this is a way for people to support Wikimedia and Wikipedia, then why not give the people what they want? I, and I wonder if there's reputational damage or just like if it's brand, I always have trouble pronouncing this word, brand dilutative because if there's a lot of one shirt going out. But then it's also rooted around a different cause. Like There's a really strong story around this, I would say. How many shirts were there? No one knows. Okay. So my, my question to you is this, is that should, well, you know what? This is actually 
this is actually a great point too, because there's another sort of, this is also a great point too, because there's another bit of news that also sort of popped up that I think in some ways is in a similar vein as this. And it's the New York Post and Supreme. Because all of a sudden people were asking, what can Supreme do to increase a more youthful vote in 2020? So do these all sort of like intertwine? And are we also entering a certain space that has to be carefully considered? It's the weirdest. Sorry, this is a tangent. I will respond to your question. The weirdest thing about the New York Post Supreme, I don't know what to call it. Do you call it a collaboration? Sure, just call it a collaboration. Collaboration is that all of the different people on my Twitter timeline were talking about it. And I follow this small number of streetwear people. And then I follow a lot of journalists. And they were all talking about this because it was like this intersection of the things they're interested in. Isn't the in. New York Post an undesirable media? Yes, in my opinion. Which is interesting because... Yeah, and it's also right-leaning. Is it not? It's Rupert, it's under Rupert, it's under Rupert Murdoch's Murdoch. umbrella. But it's also the fourth largest newspaper in the United States. I mean, to me, it would, I don't, I don't even know. I honestly, like, I, I was like, it's cool, but at the same time, like. Yeah, that I, was the weird part to me because it is known for having a conservative bias. And I don't know why I would think of Supreme. Like if I had to think of Supreme as a political entity, which is just a weird sentence. Almost all streetwear entities are left of center. That's what I would assume. So there is an inconsistency there for sure. I mean, I honestly don't. I only look at the New York Post when someone shares something. And even then I look at it as a tabloid. But it's probably not that bad. But to answer your question, can brands such as Supreme or ABC make some kind of impact on the 2020 elections or other political events? I think yes. And I think that is really interesting to see happen. And if it's important enough to brand founders or if they're big enough like Supreme, whoever makes the decisions on top, then this is something they should strongly consider. I don't think, you know, it's kind of what Brendan Babenzian was saying to David Kenji Chang in the War Machine story that we published. I don't think this is a moment in time to be apathetic or to pretend that it doesn't involve you. If you have some kind of scope, if you have some kind of attention from people, I would go so far as to say there's a responsibility to consider how you can move the needle on the subjects you care about. This is an imperfect calculation, but how many... This is an imperfect way of looking at things, but for example, obviously there's a lot of donation money that goes into things, right? Let's say it's $5 a t-shirt, right? And I donate $5 million. How many t-shirts can I get for $5 million? Can you calculate that right now? But what? So I can't believe you're asking me to do something math related. Okay, what am I doing? So you have 5 million, oh, it's it's a million t-shirts. I'm so stupid. But a million t-shirts, right? You have $5 million in donation money. If you vote, I will give you a t-shirt. A limited edition 2020 Supreme t-shirt. What does that look like? Well, I mean, you obviously have to think like they could influence if you like, could you even do that? Could you be like, Hey, if you vote for this candidate, I will give you a t-shirt. 
You couldn't do that. Ooh. I could give you a t-shirt for voting, but I couldn't give you a t-shirt yes. for voting for this candidate. Exactly. Is that Because this happened sure? with Banksy. Because he was oh, offering, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. He was offering posters for, I think he had an implication that he was going to offer posters for people who voted to stay, like during the Brexit yeah. um, vote. People who voted to, for Britain to stay in the EU. Yeah. And then that was illegal. Yeah. But like, for example, okay. but for example, you know, Starbucks will give you a free coffee on election day if you go in with an I voted sticker. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. So Supreme can hypothetically be like, hey, if you come in on election day with an I voted sticker, you get this limited edition tea. I 100% believe more young people would vote. Well, you could pick, you could pick a slew of brands, do a 2020 capsule collection and then just have like all these people. Or actually midterm primaries are this fall, I'm which not I think is with the, what that is. Um, it's for the house. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's for the house. Don't go any and, further because I don't want to know. And, and it happens in between presidential elections because it gives the um, the party that doesn't have power and the ability to regain power. So mm-hmm. it's like a balance. Like that's why it happens in between presidential elections. And so there's a lot of belief that this midterm primaries are really important because the Democrats could take the House again. Got it. And it would actually be more interesting if any brand founders are listening right now for brands to be supporting people to vote in this because... The polling right now shows that um, people are very complacent about even showing up to vote for any candidate whatsoever. Like they're just not interested in voting. I bet you if you could vote on your phone, people would do it. (sighs) Yeah, that's not going to happen. It could. The entire, that's not going to happen. With all of the fuss about ID verification and different politicians lobbying to essentially block certain socioeconomic classes from voting, that's, I don't see the phone voting. We can take this offline. Hmm? Well, we can take this offline. Okay. Okay. If this is another blockchain conversation, I'm not interested. No. I had a friend call you out. My friend was like, Eugene brings up blockchain at least once per podcast. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. I just block it out. Just... I brought it up in this podcast. Did you already? Smart contracts. Oh, you did. With the Upwork conversation. Yeah. I just let it go. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Is there anything you wanted to say about ABC and Wikipedia? Um, yeah, my last final thought is when we associate an item of hype or of popularity around a mission what does that mean for the overall mission in achieving its goal? Does there have to be like a, a switch? And what I mean is that the item gets your that item gets your door. Sorry, that item opens the door for somebody, but it there has to be another mechanism that kind of pulls people into the actual cause, right? So, do people need to be more salient? Is that right word? Like more aware of how to do that. I don't think salient's the right word, but I understand what you mean. I want to prove you wrong. Oh, okay. No, I. What's the word? Salient, most noticeable or important. Salient point. Yes. Yeah. Like. Like yeah, that's. I guess I'm. Semi right. I'll give myself fifty-two percent. So yeah, to that point, I'm. I think there has to be like a deeper consideration because 
how do you make sure people care about Wikipedia after this ABC t-shirt? I don't have an answer. Unless it's just continual messaging and knowing that, hey, this collaboration with Wikipedia was not a one-off so much as like, I actually want people to be aware that we continually believe in this mission. I think that's it. There's not... I, I mean, it could be as simple as I, I noticed that on the ABC website, there's just a donate button as well. Yeah. Not linked to but, products. Mm, I don't know. I clicked it and I went straight to the t-shirt. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought, well, I was going to say, I don't know anymore if they have a direct donate yeah. button, but it could be as simple as after this capsule ends, they still keep a link yeah. on their website. Yeah. And if anyone's interested, you can actually apply for a license to oh, do yeah. your own commercial Wikimedia, Wikipedia merchandise. That is interesting. You put this in the notes as well about the um, visual identity guidelines and usage for Wikipedia branding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's So hypothetically, anyone can do this. You could theoretically go out and print your own t-shirt that you don't sell. Like a Wikipedia all over print t-shirt, you could go do that. It's but you could also sell it. They're also like basically down for you to use it any which way you want as long as it's building community. I like it. Yeah. I like that. You know what you just reminded me of? What? Is that the ABC Wikipedia collaboration is also kind of trendy and line of streetwear activities of collaborating with random, seemingly random. Like purposeful entities. driven entities. But this feels so much more purposeful than some others that I can think to, that come to mind. Like? DHL Vermont. Okay, yeah. That, yeah. That's the main one that yeah. I was thinking okay. of, which is like such, which is the other side of the spectrum. I mean, kind of doing the same thing, but yeah. in a much less purposeful way. Sakai and New York Times. I think, uh, who did one too? Only New York and T Magazine. Maybe? Oh, yeah. Something New York like Times Magazine. Yeah. That's a good place to end today's conversation. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, and reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at Megan.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>